Healthcare and poverty are inseparable issues, and no program to improve the nation's health will be effective unless we understand the conditions of injustice which underlie disease. That's a quote from Robert Kennedy, made in 1968, and it's still true more than 50 years later. This is the Early Link Podcast. I'm your host, Rafael Otto. Today I'm speaking with Dr. John Kitzhaber, well-known in Oregon and across the country for his expertise on healthcare and health policy. He has practiced as an emergency physician, served for 14 years in the Oregon legislature, and three terms as governor of Oregon. Through his service, he authored the Oregon Health Plan and was the chief architect of the state's coordinated care organizations. Today, he continues to work on ways to improve the lives of children and families in the state with an eye on improving our health systems and how government spends its resources. Governor Kitzhaber, welcome. Well, thanks for having me. Wonderful to have you in the CI studios today. I wanted to ask you about the evolution of healthcare in Oregon, the development of the Oregon Health Plan, increase in healthcare coverage rates, the implementation of coordinated care organizations. How would you say we're doing today? I think we're doing remarkably well. You know, this odyssey began in 1989, 30 years ago, actually to the date, uh, when we passed the Oregon Health Plan, which um, uh, raised reimbursement rates for Medicaid, raised eligibility for the Medicaid program to everyone below 100% of the federal poverty level, and included folks who were at that time not eligible, so single adults and childless couples. It's sort of the ACA expansion 20 years before the ACA. Right, right. Uh, and we created this prioritized list of health services. And of course, services for ch children, maternal care, uh, preventive services were very, very high. So it was a big win for for kids today. Uh, the second big iteration of that was our coordinated care organizations. And so in Oregon today, we've got about 60% of our children and 25% of Oregonians are now uh, covered by a coordinated care organization. Right, right. That's remarkable. Yep, truly. What kind of challenges are, you, are we still looking at? Well, you know, the couple of areas of the coordinated care organizations that we have not achieved yet is we wanted to move this care model to the commercial market, right? So the care model is characterized by uh, operating within a global budget so that grows at a fixed rate, but uh, also uh, maintaining benefits and meeting rigorous metrics around quality and outcome and access. So we still have to do that. Uh, and obviously, we can learn a lot from what we did the last five years. You know, how do we make this program better? I think that over the last five years, we've had, I would call it a journey of discovery. We've realized, I think, the incredible importance of behavioral health in almost every aspect of the medical system and really our society at large. And so I think that uh, we, ne we need to do a much better job integrating uh, behavioral health services uh, into the coordinated care uh, organization. And um, uh, obviously, we need more to do more about addressing the upstream drivers, the social determinants of health and adverse childhood experiences. Well, you've talked about the fact that among all the factors that play a role uh, in an individual's health, the medical system is a relatively minor contributor in that things like affordable housing, good jobs, safe communities – uh, these play a much larger role, and, and these are considered to be the social determinants of health. Could you say more about the role of social determinants in our healthcare system, and what does the health system need to do to respond? Well, I think, uh, as, you, as you pointed out, if you look at the lifetime health status, uh, medical care is on the margin. It's 10, 15 percent. If your objective is health rather than simply financing and delivering medical care, then you have to move upstream. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, one of the tragedies, I think, one of the at least to me, it's a tragedy that most of the dialogue and debate, even in the upcoming Democratic presidential primary, is about expanding coverage to a medical system. Right. 
Uh, and it, it doesn't matter how much we spend on medical care, we're not going to have a healthier population unless we move upstream and address those issues. We act as though social, the social determinants is, the, is something new. It's sort of the new shiny thing. It's been around for a long time. We've known about this for, for years and years. If you look at most of the um, OECD countries, the other industrialized Western countries of the world, uh, and compare total spending on medical care and social investment, we're about the same. The U.S. is about the same as those nations. But if you break it down, they spend far more on social investments than on medical care, right? Right. So um, it's not a medical problem. And mm-hmm. I think one of the dangers we have is medicalizing the approach to the social determinants of health. Right. So I think we have to start by asking, what is the appropriate role of the health system, the medical system, in addressing these? And I would say there's two. Uh, since uh, healthcare now consumes about 20% of our GDP and, and, in, and in Oregon as well, mm-hmm. we need to reduce the overall cost of what we spend on medical care and reinvest that. So that's one of the rules. And that's what the coordinated care organizations do. They've demonstrated that it's possible to reduce the rate of growth of medical care without sacrificing quality and outcomes. I think the appropriate role of the medical system is in early diagnosis, early screening. So if you think about it, There's a new body of work called epigenetics that demonstrates that stress during pregnancy can actually impact genetic expression. Yes. So if we're talking about the social determinants of health, we want to go as far upstream as we can. And if you, uh, if if providers ask a woman whether she's intending to get pregnant in the next year, pregnancy intention screening, and she says yes, then that's the point in time when you ought to take a look and see what's going on in her life and in her family's life that could actually adversely affect that pregnancy and and the child. So um, if you think about it, the medical system sees all these kids way before they get to the school system, right? And so to me, their appropriate role is is that early identification. Um, To actually address these issues, uh, we need money. And we've talked about that. You need to figure out who the at-risk population is. And then, and this is to me the biggest obstacle, you need a coordinated delivery system that gets the right services to the right children and families at the right time, in the right amount, for long enough to do a difference. And if you look at that space, you've got all sorts of state, local, and federal agencies, you've got CBOs, you've got, and they're, and they're all doing, um, they're, many times they're operating in silos. Mm-hmm. Often they compete with one another for uh, funds from the same funding sources. And so it's it's really a non-system. And I do think that the biggest challenge, which I think receives the least attention, is how you coordinate the resources we do spend in that space to actually get the outcomes that we want. So we have coordinated care organizations, which were started in 2012. Right. And these are, define that more clearly, these are network ne- so, networks so, of providers, medical, dental, behavioral providers. Go ahead. So the notion of the coordinated care organization was to create a new kind of organization that was local. Uh, partnership with local providers, local citizens, the local governance structure. That would take a a broader view of health than just the clinical view, move beyond just the clinical model and take a larger view of community health, right? So we intentionally recognize that this isn't all about medical care. It's actually about, about health. So you have to have community engagement. We also, at the same time, created what we call early learning hubs. Mm-hmm. And the early learning hubs were supposed to be the focal point in that community to begin to coordinate uh, the social service uh, components of this system and then integrate those with the, with the coordinated with care the organizations. CCOs, right? Right. So in Yamhill County, the coordinated uh, care organization in Yamhill County is also the early learning hub. hub. I mean, that's mm. sort of the ultimate idea, right? right. <laughs> so it's still in its infancy. Uh, the first five years were really putting together a new, a new delivery system. 
we added 385,000 more people to the Medicaid program with the expansion of the ACA. So okay. these organizations are sort of drinking from a fire hose during the first five years. But now that they're sort of established, I think the next five years is critical. And that's the point at which we need to both prove up the model, but also begin to address and integrate these upstream investments uh, in the system. And so we're at CCO 2.0. This is what we're talking about, the next version. And what what is really, what are they poised to accomplish? Well, I, I have some concerns about the CCO 2.0 process as it is unfolding. It appears to me that it's moving more back more towards a regulatory uh, sort of insurance type model rather than the local community-based innovative model. And I'm, I'm very concerned about that. I think that stifles innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, nobody objects to transparency. Nobody objects to accountability. But I think we have to, there's been a dramatic increase in rules, regulations, reporting requirements. There's 12 new categories of, of civil penalties that can be uh, levied on CCOs. And I think we need to hit the pause button for a minute and ask ourselves, Remind ourselves what we were trying to do, what we want these organizations to look like five years from now, right. and then ask ourselves, okay, what are the specific issues we have to address, and how do we do that in a way that engages and builds on that collaborative model rather than or sort of dampens it? Right. So that's a, so that's a big challenge. I I would say specifically beyond just the uh, I guess the tone. We do have to recognize uh, that our behavioral health system is badly broken mm-hmm. um, on a number of levels. Uh, first of all, there's the stigma that is, I think, still associated, particularly with uh, substance abuse disorders, mm-hmm. and to some extent with larger behavioral health disorders. Uh, we we have a reimbursement problem. Uh, behavioral health, mental health services are reimbursed lower than physical health services, and substance abuse disorders are reimbursed lower than Even mental lower, health disorders. Right. right? So yep. it doesn't make any sense. So the, the recognition that these are drivers of, of of chronic illness and a whole host of other social problems is really important. Um, I do think, though, that that as we figure out how to better integrate uh, uh, effective behavioral health services into the medical model, if you will, we need to recognize that the origins of many behavioral health issues and substance abuse issues occur far earlier. We can demonstrate that kids who have a high ACE score, who have been exposed to multiple types of chronic childhood stress, have a much higher incidence of risky behaviors of chronic illness, of behavioral disorders. And so, again, as with the acute care medical model, if we view behavioral health as a medical problem only, we miss uh, the ability to get upstream and, and and address it at its root. Right. You missed that opportunity. Right. I wanted to touch on the idea of incentivized metrics as part of the CCO model. Where, where did this idea come from? Well, when we passed the um, the original legislation, uh, we were able to obtain a waiver from the federal government under the Obama administration, and we struck a deal. The deal was we were going to get $1.9 billion over five years to help us make the transition. Uh, and those dollar and in exchange for that, we would maintain a growth rate of 3.4% per member per year mm-hmm. uh, with no reduction in enrollment or benefits, and we would meet metrics around quality and outcomes, right? right. So that was the... So it was like when we did the priority list, no one knew how to do it. We just said we were going to do it, and then we figured it out. Yeah. So we had a metrics committee uh, that was set up shortly thereafter that began to look at baselines. Uh, how many ED, uh, emergency de- department visits are there? How many people are in patient-centered primary care homes? How many readmissions do you have for mental health disorders or congestive heart failure? And so then they created targets. And uh, the physicians or the coordinated care organizations that actually met or exceed those, those targets got some additional resources. So it was a financial incentive 
to do the right thing. Right. And actually, I'm not suggesting that providers don't want to do the right thing, but this really highlighted those things that we wanted to focus on in terms of changing how we delivered care and the outcomes we got. And they were they proved to be remarkably effective. Right. And it's, this is not something that is common. You don't find this really in other states. Well, you know, we don't have a – I mean, basically, our healthcare system is still built around a, on a fee-for-service chassis. So the more you do, the more you get paid, right? Yeah. And, and it's not connected to outcomes at all, which is – you know, one of the problems with the U.S. healthcare system. So this is an effort to actually take the dollars we're spending and link them to the kinds of, of health outcomes that we want. So uh, most of the system doesn't work that way. There are a lot of value-based payment methodologies, but this one actually is connected to, uh, to real outcomes that we measure and actually reward. And those dollars then can be spent on real community issues that the community is involved in identifying. Right. One of the, the, the concepts, and this is a little bit in the weeds, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to keep it at the, at the, at the weed top level. <laughs> um, originally, we wanted a budget and some outcomes, right? So right now, for example, my famous example is the, is the air conditioner. But if, you, if, you, um, if you're a, a elder, let's say you're an elderly uh, man with congestive heart failure, well-managed, and you're living in an unair conditioned apartment, and there's a heat wave, and the temperature in your apartment goes up to the point that you have more stress on your heart and you tip over in a full-blown congestive heart failure. The current system will pay to take you to the hospital and will pay $50,000 to stabilize you, but it won't pay for a $200 window air conditioner. Right. That's not, there's no billing code for that, right? There's yeah. no billing code for a cure, for example. There's no billing code for prevention. So we wanted to get away from sort of the, the rate-based system where you you bill based on certain procedures and give the CCO the ability to spend money on whatever they want as long as they met the quality outcomes. Yeah. And this is sort of the first way to begin to spend money upstream as opposed to simply waiting until you you have someone in an acute medical situation. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah. You've talked about this a bit already. The importance of investing in children birth through age six where early investments are part of that prevention strategy. What does healthcare transformation mean for children today in Oregon? Well, right now, it means that, uh, you know, almost all our kids now have a payment source. And because Oregon has um, integrated behavioral health for a long time, at least into the payment model, so they have a funding source to, to take care of their medical needs. So that's critically important of the expansion of access. It still is a medical model, though, by and large, and we're trying to change that. And I think Oregon, at least, has explicitly acknowledged the fact that what children need uh, they'd certainly need acute medical care, but they'd be much happier if they didn't ever need acute medical care because we'd address their issues. And those issues occur in the family and the home and in the neighborhood and in the community. And they're not medical problems. They're social problems. They have to do with poor housing, food insecurity, unsafe neighborhoods, a, you know, a, an unstable family. And, you know, we pay lip service to that, but we don't spend any money on it, Right. It, which, it, which is a tragedy, right? I mean, I think the, the greatest threat to this nation is not terrorism. It's not the trade deficit with China. It's the fact that probably 60% of our children are exposed at a very early age or even during pregnancy to a set of risk factors that will dramatically compromise their ability to succeed. And you cannot solve that and protect them from that by building a wall, but only by building strong families. And so those investments need to become the highest priority, I think, of our society if we want to uh, really build a future of hope and optimism and opportunity. Yeah. You've also been uh, working with uh, Children's Institute as an advisor, working on this idea that the health system has a role in early learning, has a role in in kindergarten readiness. So can you talk about what that looks like? 
Um, it's a very important area, and I certainly commend the Children's Institute for the, for the work they've been doing in this space. I think it's important to remember, though, that kindergarten readiness is an outcome, right? And kindergarten readiness is the product of successfully addressing everything that's happened to that child before they ever get to kindergarten age, right? Yes. So it's a marker, right? right? Which gets us right back into the conversation we've been having about how you invest upstream. Right. And again, I don't think that we want to medicalize the kinds of things that get children off and, and, and families off track. It's not primarily a medical problem. Medical, the medical problems are a consequence, mm -hmm. uh, but it's not the cause. So I, again, I think the, the, the most effective role of the, of, the, of the healthcare system, let's say there's three. The one, as I mentioned, no one else sees these kids at the very beginning. It's the medical system that has the opportunity to do the pre-pregnancy intention screening to determine the risk factors that are, that are involved. Secondly, the healthcare system, I think, needs to begin to view itself as a health system, not just a medical system, right? Since part of its charge is to make sure that we get the services and supports to children and families very, very early on. And um, the contrib financial contribution the medical system can make is to try to operate on a budget that frees up resources in the general fund that we can reallocate upstream to children. Um, so I, I think it's, uh, I, th I think we make a mistake if we think this is primarily the responsibility of the medical system. Mm -hmm. uh, the medical system is not a housing agency. It's not a housing authority. It's not a school board. You know, that's not their core competence. But right. what they can do, this coordinated care organizations, because of their, at least the original notion, they're such a community-based institution, they can kind of be a convener. They can help bring the, the, along with the early learning hubs, can bring the various players together and, and hopefully create that kind of more cogent, aligned system that we, we talked about uh, earlier that we still have not yet achieved. Oregon recently passed the Historic Student Success Act, which will dedicate $1 billion annually every year to education, and that includes early learning and K-12 education. I wanted to get your thoughts on the Student Success Act and whether you see opportunities for aligning our education and health systems through this, these new investments. Well, it's a truly remarkable achievement that the legislature accomplished. I mean, you know, major revenue increase and, and really a lot of new money into the school system, which it desperately needs. Uh, at the same time, um, I, I think, as we have been discussing earlier, the inflection point, the point at which children go off track starts before they get to school. Yeah. The analogy I would give is if you are on an airplane going from Portland to New York and you're two degrees off course to the north when you leave Portland, you're going to end up over Montreal. Right. And it's much easier to correct that over Pendleton than over Chicago. And at some point, you reach a, you can't turn hard enough to get where you want to go. So the longer we wait to identify and pick these things up, the more costly it is and the less effective our interventions are going to be. So while I, I'm delighted that we have that money for our school system, we have that money for our early learning programs, some of that money has got to be invested even further upstream. And we have to make sure that we have a delivery system that isn't a series of one-off programs or community-based organizations or agencies that aren't necessarily working with each other and measure their success by how many kids go through their program rather than what happens to those kids five years down the line. If we don't put those in place and have that conversation, this money might not have the full impact that it, it, that it could potentially have. You've talked about this before, you, that this idea that we are uh, program rich and system poor. And that, that's, that's what you're talking about that's here. That's exactly what I'm talking about. I mean, and I don't know where this quote came from. It's not mine, but the, 
the, uh, the the notion that we're failing our children one program at a time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And it's it's uh, and, and you know there's some politics and turf involved in this. I mean, mm-hmm. we have data, as I told you, at the uh, Center for Evidence Based Policy that can actually go back 20 years and they can evaluate whether these programs are effective or not. Mm-hmm. That threatens some people because. You may find out that what you've been doing for 20 years doesn't actually have much of an impact on the child, right? right? And each one of those programs has a constituency and an executive director, and right? So somehow we have to be able to remember that the objective here is our children. Yeah. The objective is making sure these kids have an equal opportunity to succeed. And that's more important than the institutional survival of any particular program. So we need to look at those things critically. You've had to do some work breaking down those turf barriers. What does that look like? What are some strategies? Well, I think the single most important strategy is convening. And I think that the you know, the most valuable and most powerful aspect of a governor is the A, the ability to sort of set the agenda and you have a bully pulpit. But even more important is the convening authority. When a governor asks people to show up, they will come. I remember asking people from the timber industry to come together and have a conversation with a lot of folks in the environmental community, and nobody liked it, mm-hmm. but they all came. And once people are in a room together, once you look across the room at somebody uh, and begin to recognize them as people rather than partisans or the, or the policies that they believe in, something magic happens. That's why coordinated care organizations work. That's why our Oregon watershed councils work. That's why early learning hubs work. That's why our regional solutions team works. So I think that convening is really, really important. And I think Having somebody uh, who has the authority to convene those different players, the CBOs, the agencies that are often working in parallel rather than on converging courses uh, for the interests of those children is, is critically important. It's not complicated. Life's about relationships. It's about relationships, yeah. And it's about you know making those work, having people actually take the time to have those conversations. And realize that there's something they're engaged in that's bigger than themselves or their organization, Yeah, which to me is the future of children. Yeah. Nationally, as we look at the 2020 elections, you touched on this idea a little bit, uh, but we're hearing more about programs like Medicare for All on one hand, reducing health care costs on the other. How would you recommend that the left and right come together in the national conversation over this issue about health care? I'd like to believe it's possible. Yeah. <laughs> well, here's Do you the, believe it's possible? I, I, I do believe it's possible. Uh, I mean, I'd be really depressed. I couldn't get up in the morning if I didn't. Yeah. Um, I think the national health care debate has been polarized for two reasons. First, it's that neither the Republicans or the Democrats assume any fundamental change in the health care business model, delivery model. We either pay for it or we don't. So repealing the ACA was reducing money from the current system. Medicare for all is putting more money into the current system. But we're still funding a dysfunctional hyperinflationary medical system. So until we can shift the debate from um, uh, simply coverage to what people are getting coverage for, I don't mean the benefit, I mean the delivery model, Mm -hmm. you you can't solve it. The other problem is there's no general agreement on what we're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. It's not financing delivering medical care. It's keeping people healthy, which means you have to be looking upstream as well. So the problem with the democratic approaches, and I'm very um, – I I believe in the value proposition of Medicare for all. Medicare for all, at least under Senator Warren's proposal, will spend about another $20 trillion over 10 years on a medical system, on an acute care medical system. A portion of that $10 million ought to be spent on early childhood, on housing, on nutrition, on family stability, on economic opportunity. So we're having the wrong debate. There's, there's no upstream approach in, in there's Medicare no upstream approach at, right at now. all as far as I'm aware of. And what we've demonstrated in Oregon is that you cannot expand access 
politically or economically unless you reduce costs. And the great lesson of the coordinated care organizations is we've shown that we can expand access and manage cost. There's a great book by Thomas Pinchon called Gravity's Rainbow. And my favorite quote from that book goes like this. If they can get you asking the wrong questions, they don't have to worry about the answers. Yeah. And for years, we've been asking about the public subsidies that, that, that help people afford medical care. Who gets them? Who pays them? How big they are? Instead of why does healthcare cost so much in the first place? And why are we getting such a lousy return on investment in terms of the health of our society? So we, we need to reframe the national debate. And you, you get up each day because you believe we can get there. You believe we can do this. I believe we can do it. What else is part of your vision for where we're trying to head? Well, I mean, I think that, you know, we are such a wealthy nation. Uh, and we've got such a, you know, the, the medical system is a snapshot of our society. Our society at the root cause of a lot of the social determinants is poverty. That is the major social determinant. A lot flows from that. And we've got this terrible income inequality and you see it in the medical system, right? I mean, you see the, the people who are worst off aren't the people on Medicaid. There are people who are in the individual market or, and have now, you know, or people who are have good employment-based coverage, but they have a $5,000 a year deductible. So they're the insured, uninsured. Yeah. That, that shouldn't go on here. Right. Uh, and you can't, you can't fix that problem unless you shift the debate to the delivery system, right? And um, I'm, <laughs> I spent a lot of time back in DC now. I've, I've, my, my son calls it the one-man army. It's, it's just <laughs> a little teeny group of us. Uh, but the notion is we've got to change the focus of the debate. We've got to be asking the right questions. And and I, you know, if you go back to the 60s and remember Kennedy's speech about going to the moon, very inspirational. He gave us a destination, not a roadmap. We had no idea how to get to the moon. But, but it was so inspirational that we came together in, in common cause and, and achieved this amazing thing. I think ensuring that every child has an equal opportunity to succeed. We're all born different, we have different gifts, but we should have an equal opportunity uh, to get the very most we can out of our life and give the most we can back to each other in our society. To me, that's the, that's, that, to me, that's the vision of the 21st century. And, and I think if we can focus on that, uh, we can figure out how to get there. It's, it's not as complicated as going to the moon. Governor Kishaber, it's been a pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This is the Early Link Podcast brought to you by Children's Institute. Children's Institute is working to ensure that every child in Oregon has the best start in life. I'm your host, Rafael Otto. Join us and tune in on 99.1 FM on the second and fourth Sunday of every month at 4.30 p.m. Episodes are available on Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, and Stitcher. You can also find episodes on the Children's Institute website at childinst.org and on the Portland Radio Project website at prp.fm. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.